Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning, to spend time in your word and to be reminded of the gifts that you give to us, especially this morning, the gift that you give to us in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Remind us of the salvation that is ours in you and the hope that we have because we have a God who is always on our side. Speak to us in these moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So growing up, I mentioned this before, but I was the son of two Lutheran school teachers. In fact, that's why I love this time of year. It always reminds me of how my dad would wake me up at 5 a.m. to go into the classroom and help him do all of his work. But uh, I would go in with him and help set up the classroom, organize things, put papers out on desks, and all those other things that, that teachers have to do to prepare. But in being a Lutheran school teacher's son, I knew what it was like to move around a lot. In fact, over my grade school career, we moved six times and I was a part of five different grade schools growing up. And I can tell you that having moved around so many times during that time period of my life, that one of the most anxiety-filled places for somebody who moves from school to school to school is the lunchroom. Now you go, why the lunchroom? Well, because when you walk into the lunchroom that first day, when you are brand new to that school, you start to ask yourself the question, where do I sit? Who is gonna let me sit next to them? Am I sitting at the wrong table? Am I sitting in a spot that has always been reserved for somebody else so they're gonna ask me to move because it's their spot? Kind of like church, isn't it? Is this the right group of friends? Is this the right people? Am I in the right place? And, and you start to, to get nervous about, is there reserved seating? In high school, it's, this is the freshman table, so you just go over there and you leave the seniors alone. There's always seems to be reserved seating. Seating for different cliques, for those that, that are popular, those who have been friends forever, or those who are on the basketball team, those who are, so there's different tables for different groups of people who sit together and you're not sure exactly where you're supposed to fit in because you don't know who is supposed to sit where and who's supposed to sit next to who. In fact, that's what a wedding is, isn't it? All sorts of different reserved signs for different groups based on their worthiness to sit at different tables. Or you experience this at Thanksgiving when you get to set up the extra table, the card table. And who gets to sit at the card table? The kids do, that's right. That is the kids table. The worst part of being a kid is if you're the one that has to help mom or dad set the adult table, and as you're setting the table, you ask them, where do I get to sit? And they tell you, not at this table. You go to the kids table. But oh, for that day when you are told, you know what, you're too big to sit at the kids' table, you get to move to the adult table. It's a worthiness thing, isn't it? Who is qualified to sit in each place, at each table, in each seat with the people all around you? And when we talk about the Lord's table, and when we are reminded of exactly what is served at God's table, when we are reminded that Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood for the forgiveness of sins and we understand the holiness of God. And because we understand the holiness of God, we understand the holiness of what this meal is all about. 
we begin to have to ask ourselves, well, who is truly worthy then? What does it mean to be worthy? And, and who is God's table truly reserved for? We're going to look at that in our gospel reading for today in John chapter 6. So I'd love for you to open up your Bibles this morning to John chapter 6. You can find it on page 892. We're going to look at verse 52. But I want to give you the context because the context is significantly important to what Jesus is about to speak about in this meal. So page 892 is where you'll find John 6:52. But the beginning of John chapter 6, we hear one of the miracles that is repeated in all of the Gospels. It's the feeding of the 5,000. So it says that there were 5,000 men, and that didn't include all of the women and all of the children who would have been there, who gathered around Jesus to hear him teach. And as Jesus was teaching them, the disciples began to realize that the people were getting hungry. And if they didn't do something about it, then the people were going to start grumbling and complaining about their stomachs. So they, they come to Jesus and says, Jesus, the people are getting really hungry. There's not enough cities and villages in the area to feed all of these people. So what are we going to do with this? Well, Jesus says, well, well what do we have here? What, what do you guys have? So they look and they find a little boy who has five loaves and two fish. And he says, says, well, we have five loaves and two fish here. And he goes, that's enough. To which, as we've said before, the question that I would return is always, enough for who? This will feed maybe the disciples. It's not going to feed 5,000 men and, and not including women and children. How are we going to feed all these people? And Jesus said, bring them here. So Jesus takes the loaves and the fish into his hands and he blesses them. Then he hands them from his hands into the hands of his disciples and the disciples distribute the bread and the fish to the people who are gathered there. And it is more than enough for all of them. That what God flows out of God's hands is more than enough for all of the people who are gathered there. And it's a reminder to us that the things that flow out of God's hands to you, they're more than enough. And so they receive the food and, and they fill their stomachs. And it says at the very end of the feeding of the 5,000 that the people were, were so satisfied by this, they were so overjoyed with what Jesus had done for them that they actually sought to make him king. And Jesus has to retreat because of this. And they weren't trying to make him king because they recognized Jesus to be the king of kings and lord of lords. The reason that they sought to make him king is that they were looking for someone who would be their so-called bread king. In fact, we hear about this in the very next section of John chapter 6, or two sections later, where the next section has Jesus who retreats. He sends his disciples across to the other side in the boat. Jesus walks across the water. He makes it to the other side. And the people, not knowing where Jesus went, wake up the next morning, can't find Jesus because they want to hear from him again. And they see him on the other side. So they get into their boats and they travel around the Sea of Galilee to the other side. In verse 22, it says this. So on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat. Jesus had entered the boat. And so they follow him. Verse 25. And when they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me because you saw signs, but you are seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. See what Jesus says to him there? He goes, you're looking for me. You are seeking me because I can fill your stomachs. 
But that's the wrong reason. And how often do we seek Jesus only in those times when we need him to fulfill our physical needs, our earthly needs, where he can be our bread king here on earth, where we say, Jesus, you know, we're struggling financially. So, so if I worship you a little more and pray a little more, would you fill my life with some of those blessings? Jesus, my relationship is struggling. So, so if I spend more time with you, will you just fix that? Jesus, I, you know, I need some help in this area. I, I'm, I'm hungry. I'm, I'm going through difficulties and struggles. Jesus, be my earthly bread king. We want him and we seek him to fulfill the things that we need here in this world. And Jesus, you seek me for the things of this world. But don't look just for the things of this world because I bring you something that is much greater than that. Says 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. What that passage reminds me of is uh, what happened on Saturday afternoon. As I was finishing up preparing my message and uh, was sitting on my couch watching some, some Little League baseball and, and just putting a final few tweaks on the message, my daughter Jessica came out and, and she cut up an apple. And after cutting up the apple, she got some caramel and she started eating it. But uh, uh, Jessie uh, had a cold and was a little under the weather. And so she got a little distracted and, and uh, just started to not feel like she was hungry at that moment. And then came back a little bit later and found her apple again, but it started to get brown. So she looked at the apple and she looked at dad and goes, dad, do you want this? To which I said, no. She goes, I don't want it. It's kind of brown now. And I was thinking about our text and how often do we run after things that turn brown? How often do we run after things that rot, that decay? How often do we run after things that five years from now really won't matter at all? Jesus is saying, stop running after these things that turn brown and rot and decay and are forgotten because I have something much greater and much better for you. And so it says in verse 28, so then they say to him, what must we do, be doing to do the work of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who has sent him. And they said to him, then what sign do you do for us that we may see and believe? What work will you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus is going to use that image of bread from heaven to teach them something important. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. What they're referring back to is they're referring back to Exodus 16. In Exodus 16, where the people of God are in the wilderness escaping slavery in Egypt, and they begin to grumble, complain, because they don't have food to fill their stomachs, just like at the feeding of the 5,000. And so God says to Moses, I will take care of my people. I will sustain them in the wilderness. He says, so every morning when you wake up, there will be this bread like fine dew on the ground. And when they woke up, they would look at it and they go, what is this? And they called it manna. 
He says, every morning you will collect, and you will collect only enough for that day. Because anything that lasts past that day, anything that you have overnight, it's gonna rot and it'll bring worms and, and it'll be disgusting. And there were some who actually collected more than they needed just for that day, and it rotted overnight. But every morning, except on the Sabbath day, where God allowed them on the, on the day before the Sabbath to collect two days worth, every day they would collect just enough for that day. Kind of brings a whole new meaning to when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Because they really had to trust God for their daily bread. Not just their weekly bread or their monthly bread, but to say, God, give us just today our daily bread and we will trust you tomorrow to give us tomorrow's bread. He says, they were filled though with that. And God offers to you a bread that is so much greater. And we come to find out that that bread that he offers to them was his very self. Because he goes on and starts to explain this in verse 52, he says to them, so then the Jews among them began to dispute, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus says to them, now as you hear these words, I need you to imagine that you are listening to these words for the first time. Because the impact of these words is sometimes lost on us because we read these words through the lens of this. So we've heard these words, we come to communion, we hear the words of institution, but you have to remember, the Lord's Supper has not happened yet. Monday, Thursday has not happened yet. The upper room has not taken place. Jesus has not said, this is my body, this is my blood. They don't get taught catechism class that teaches them this. So this is a brand new statement that they're about to hear. So you have to listen to these words as if you had never heard them to, uh, before to understand the radical nature of what Jesus is saying to them and why it is so hard for them to understand this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now, if you had never heard those words before, you would have thought, Jesus, that sounds like you're asking us to be cannibals. Right? In fact, in the early church, one of the things that the early church was accused of in the first and second century AD was they were actually accused of being cannibals because they would talk about eating and drinking the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And people would have no clue and no understanding of that. Go, go, that sounds like a disgusting practice. What are you doing? But what they were doing was exactly what Jesus had called them to do, which is to receive the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. He says, if you seek after manna, the things of this world, you will be sustained physically. But if you seek the things of God, the true body and blood of Jesus Christ, you will receive what he gives you spiritually, which is the forgiveness of sins and the new life that is yours in Jesus Christ. And notice, he says, this truly is. He says, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. In fact, those of you who have had confirmation with me, well, you know what's coming, which is this, and I tell this to our confirmands all the time, that the most important words in the words of institution is, is, there we go, see? Is, and the reason is is so significant is because is means is, that's right. Is actually literally means is. Like if I were to hold up my iPhone this morning and would say, this is an iPhone, that you would believe that it actually 
is an iPhone. You wouldn't say, oh no, I think that's an Android or I think it's something, no. So when Jesus offers to his disciples on Monday, Thursday, the bread and the wine and he says, take, eat this, my body and this, my blood, is means is. He's not trying to deceive or trick or say it represents or looks like or or you can remember. He actually says, take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood for the forgiveness of sins. He says, what I offer to you is greater than anything this world could ever offer to you because this is a gift where no one is left out and no one goes without, where you receive the riches of all foods. And if we think about it, even the scraps from God's table would be enough and would be greater than anything this world offers to us. But God offers to us so much more than just scraps at the Lord's table. Because what does he offer us at the Lord's table? He offers us himself. He says, for my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. And he's referring to what he will do a, a year later in the words of institution. So continuing in verse 56, he says, Whoever abide, feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. If we think of that word communion, when we take communion together, uh, we heard uh, Zach, Pastor Zach, talk about that before when you stood up here. And he did the confession absolution. He says, says, it always reminds us of that unity, communion, union, unity. He says, we are one. And we're one with one another, but we're also one with God. He says, you abide in me and I abide in you. And as the living Father has sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. For whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He reminds us of what an amazing act of grace it is to receive the very body and blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, to receive a feast that is a foretaste of the feast to come in his eternal kingdom, to receive from his hands his very self and to understand that this meal is enough. And why is this meal enough? Well, for the exact same reason that five loaves and two fish was enough, because it came from the hands of of Jesus. And Jesus offers us a meal that is enough because it comes from his hands to yours. And he offers to you a meal that is like no other meal. But if that's the truth, and we believe it's the truth because that's what God's word says to us, if we believe that this truly is the body and blood of Jesus Christ offered to us for the forgiveness of sins because that's what his word says to us, then the question comes back to if this is Jesus in his holiness, then who truly is worthy to partake of this? Who deserves this meal? For we have to recognize our unholiness, our brokenness, our waywardness, our rebellion against God, our rejection of his will, his word, and his way. We have to think about the times we have hurt other people and thought, word, and deed. We have to say, God, there is no way I am worthy to come to your table to receive anything from your hands. But that's exactly what he wants us to say. In fact, in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, when we hear about Jesus eating at a table, it says this. And so uh, the Pharisees and the scribes saw Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors and says, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. Jesus offered this meal to sinners and tax collectors. On Monday, Thursday, he gave his very body and blood to someone who would later deny him, to another who would doubt the resurrection, to those who would run away from him in his time of need. He would offer himself to Paul. When we hear Paul in 1 Corinthians talk about the, the, the Lord's Supper, to Paul who had killed Christians, and he offers this meal to the least, to the last, to the lonely, to those who are far away, and to those who are broken and downtrodden, because this table is reserved for all sinners who seek God's grace. His table is not for those who deem themselves worthy, but for those who deem themselves unworthy. For those who deem themselves so far from God that they can only come in one way, and that is as beggars who seek the grace of Jesus Christ. One of the things I love about how we receive communion is, is you and I, we all receive communion on one level plane. There are none of us who are up or down on the steps before God. We are all in this together. When we receive communion at the foot of the table of Jesus Christ, there is no rich or poor. There is no blue collar or white collar. There is no favored and unfavored. There is no worthy and unworthy, but there are one set of sinners who are saved solely by the grace of Jesus Christ because we are all one together. And what makes us significant because when we come to this table, you and I, we are significant. What makes us significant, though, is not ourselves, but it's the one who invites us. It'd be a lot like this. Imagine if next Sunday I told you when you were all coming into church that I had been invited to Aaron Rodgers' house for lunch. Right? So just imagine, right? Your first words probably would be, why would he invite you? You're a Bears fan. You're not worthy to eat at his table. Why would he invite you? But isn't that God's table? Why would he invite you? You're not worthy to eat at his table. Do you know how many times you've sinned? Do you know how often you've betrayed God? Do you know how many times you've been negative? Have you heard the words you've said? Have you seen the things you've done? Why would God invite you? And then Jesus would step in and say, I have invited them because I have chosen it, not you. You are worthy to come to God's table and to receive the very body and blood of Jesus Christ, a foretaste of the feast to come, not because of who you are, but because of the one who invited you and what he has done for you. Come to his table. Come you who are weary, who are broken, who are tired, Come you who recognize your sinfulness and your fallenness. Come to the table, to the spot that is reserved for you because God has reserved a spot for you right here that you might receive his grace and his mercy in your greatest time of need. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you invite us to your table a place that you have reserved for us. Not because we are worthy, because Lord, when we are honest with ourselves, we know we are not worthy.
but you invite us to this table out of your worthiness. So here at your table, we receive the very body and blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We receive it as fellow sinners who are broken by our waywardness, by our sinfulness, by our betrayal of you in thought, word, and deed. And yet, in the midst of our sin and brokenness, you don't exclude us from the table, but you invite us to the place that is reserved for us that we might receive your grace now and forever. May we always yearn to come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.